hard things to appreciate <laughs> about my generation. I think one would be how much we value authenticity. My friends who are also millennials strive, we don't always get it right, but we strive to be very real people and value that in one another. I think that's pretty special about our generation, that it's what you see is what you get. One thing I admire about the Millennials is that they've continued to pave the way for a more racially and socially tolerant world. I have four guys I think about, and I've got to know them pretty well here. What I really admire about those guys, and they all have it, is purpose. It's, what is my purpose, and if I don't have it, I'm going to find it. Asking themselves questions like, who am I, where am I coming from, and where am I going to? They're all seeking purpose. It's a real big strength. I'm a Gen X, and I appreciate informalness and informal tones and casual dress while still being professional. And I think they're gonna maintain and kind of keep that sustained. And I think they get a bum rap sometimes about being entitled or being instant gratification type people. I've known many millennials who, yeah, and they've, they've had iPhones and they have access to things quickly, but they're hard workers. And they're pushing the same way that, that Gen X did. I admire them because they seem to easily multitask to get their careers in order but most importantly, to get their family in order. That is so, so important. We can spend so much time on a career, but what does it really do for our family if we aren't with them to give them the right objectives in life? One thing I like about millennials a lot is they hold my generation to account, and we should be held to account with some of the challenges the country's in, and we could have done a lot of things different. But, you know, holding each other to account generationally is a real strength, and that's one generation I like that does that, and it's right, and we've earned it. I have a lot of faith in, in, in the millennials that they can kind of continue with, with their own style and take us to the next level as a country with their agenda, and, and they, they work as hard as any generations before them, I think. of our Generation Series. And we've been planning this series now uh, for a little over a year. We uh, have, have been kind of getting into it. And as we have been teaching through it, I can tell you this is the week that most people have anticipated. Most people have been looking forward to today. We are talking about millennials. Ooh. Reminds me of like the Lion King, Mufasa. Ooh, say it again, millennials. It just kind of has that feel to it, doesn't it? As I've you know, talked about this series and heard from people from other generations, I've heard them say things like, I can't wait to hear what you're gonna say to those millennials. Put them in their place. And then I've heard from people who are millennials that have said, Sean, please like be gentle. Be easy. We have some good redeeming qualities about us. If you could just kind of share a couple of those, um, that would be that would be great. We would we would really appreciate it. And the anticipation for this week from those outside of the millennial generation, and maybe a little bit of the anxiety for those who are inside of this generation. I think it, it speaks to the fact that you know, really, as we look throughout the the last several generations, there's really no generation that has received more criticism than millennials. They've experienced it from those who are older than them, who have 
called them lazy and entitled snowflakes. They are now experiencing it from generations younger than them who are telling them that their skinny jeans are no longer cool and that their side parts are out of style. (laughs) They're kind of getting it from both sides. And for the past several years, millennials have been this cultural punching bag that everyone enjoys taking taking a swipe at. And some of it is earned and some of it seems just a bit excessive. At one point, uh, a couple of years ago, it seemed like there was a new article coming out each week detailing something or an industry that millennials were killing. And if you Google search this, you will find like hundreds of items that millennials have been accused of putting to death. And so here are just some examples of things that you might find. Uh, Millennials have been accused of killing department stores, diamonds, which I don't get that. I mean, rocks forged (laughs) underneath weight coming to become beautiful diamonds. How are millennials killing them? But evidently they're killing the diamond industry. Uh, Golf, bar soap, uh, lunch. Millennials have been accused of killing lunch. Vacations, napkins, fabric softener, the McWrap from McDonald's. I don't even know where the correlation is on that, but somehow millennials killed it. Light yogurt. This one's my favorite. The Canadian tourism industry. (laughs) Poor Canada. Cereal, handshakes, suits, cruises, even baby names. These are all things millennials have been accused of killing. And the list goes on and on and on. And Kelly Dawson, our resident millennial in our intro videos, uh, shared a one with us that, is, that was new to me, but as I have talked to others in her age group, I'm finding is actually a thing. And so let's check out this video. We haven't talked about it, but it seems to be agreed upon that we are getting rid of the flat sheet. I literally don't know any millennials that use the flat sheet on our beds. We use the fitted sheet and then straight to the next blanket and no flat sheet. You know what, that draws the line for me right there. No flat sheet, are you kidding? Yeah, okay. You know, this generation has been criticized um, relentlessly. It, it has been picked apart more than any other. They are the punchline of jokes. They are the source of angst amongst those who are concerned now as millennials are becoming you know, so popular and, and taking uh, their position in the workforce. They're starting to have a greater influence in culture and, and politics and communities. But when I think of millennials, I'll tell you, I don't think of any of that. I, I think of people like Justin and Jamie Hagan. After graduating from Bible college, Justin and Jamie could have gone and really done anything that they wanted. They, they are incredibly gifted, immensely talented uh, individuals who love the Lord and love the church. They could have gone anywhere. They, they could have served at any church, had you know health insurance and a salary to afford them to start paying off their student loans, which is what their parents really wanted them to start doing. But instead... They, they watched the news as the bombings of the Boston Marathon took place. And their heart began to, to beat for New England. And they began to do more research and study. And they found that, the, that New England is um, the, the most spiritual dark place in our nation. It's the least churched culture in our country. 
And their hearts started to be drawn towards New England. And so they came out and they served at our church in Rhode Island because they wanted their lives to make a difference. They wanted to do something meaningful for the kingdom of God. They wanted to sacrificially give up this in order to help people know love and follow Jesus. And when they came to serve at our church, we could not offer them a dollar. We didn't have anything in our budget to be able to pay them. They didn't care. They went to their friends, to their family, to their home churches, and they raised 100% of their support so that they could pursue this passion of going and serving people who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And they lived in this one-bedroom apartment that they could barely afford in downtown Providence because they wanted to be in the center of the heart of our ministry they wanted to build relationships with their neighbors and, and with students and with, with those that were in their community. And every single day, they would pray and pray and pray for people to come to know and love and follow Jesus. And when they got done praying for them, then they started praying, God, please let our support money come in this month because we need to pay rent and we need to pay off those student loans. But they gave themselves to a ministry that they felt called to and they were passionate to, and they made sacrifices for that ministry. I think of Mason Lambert, whose first mission experience was with me and his dad and a few others to Mozambique, Africa, when he was 14 years old. I didn't tell this to the other services. You know, the 11 o'clock, you guys kind of get a sermon that nobody else gets, um, <laughs> that for good or for bad. But my lasting memory of Mason from that trip, he's 14 years old, and the missionary that we were working with had asked him to teach about sexual purity to teenagers in this village that we were going to serve in kind of remote village, Mozambique. And Mason was uh, teaching about this. And there were three teenage moms in the front row who were breastfeeding their children. And Mason was just eyes up here, eyes up here, you know, just talking about this, trying to avoid what was happening over here. But he took that. And he took his love for people who don't know Jesus and his passion to serve the kingdom of God. And he has this brilliant business mind. And he's like, how can God use my passion and how he has gifted me for his kingdom? And so now Mason is serving with one of our global mission partners that we supported for years here at Sherwood Oaks called IDES. And he's using his passion and his business mind to help those who go through times of crisis. I think of Will and Michaela Grover who just left their families to serve as missionaries in Cambodia. I think of my wife, Amber, who I may have accidentally called a boomer last week. And there's nothing wrong with being a boomer unless you're a millennial um, <laughs> and you're not quite the age of a boomer yet. And so I just wanna publicly apologize to my wife uh, for inferring that. She is not a boomer, she is a millennial. But my wife, before we had kids, was a manager of a bank uh, for several years, and she was good at what she did. She went to school for this. She, her degree is in this. Um, she was on track to become a regional manager with the bank that, that she worked in. And when we had kids, she, she put her career to the side, and just over the last couple of years has been thinking about getting back into something, working full-time again. And she decided that she didn't want to go into to banking. Instead, now my wife is a full-time uh, employee of CASA in Lawrence County. And she's doing it because she cares for children who are at risk, who come from broken families, broken homes, who are in difficult situations. She wants to be their advocate 
as they walk through foster care and as their parents are kind of getting their lives put back together. And, and her paycheck isn't even close to what it was when she was managing a bank, but her heart is full because she's doing something that she is passionate about, that she's called to, that she's gifted for, that she loves. I think of people in our congregation, in our community, who are raising their families, who are pursuing their passions, who are living faith-filled lives, trying to make ends meet and pay their student loans. When I think of millennials, I praise God for them and the valuable part that they play in his kingdom in our own church family. And like the traditionalists before them who teach us the value of commitment and sacrifice, the, the boomers who help us understand the, the value of a personal relationship with God and the Xers who model the importance of relationships and, and a faith that is integrated into every part of our lives. Millennials show us that action and authenticity are a meaningful part of following Jesus that action and authenticity are a meaningful part of following Jesus. And, and they're both meaningful parts of following Jesus because these are two things that Jesus modeled for us and taught us. We have, we have two scriptures that we're gonna be looking at today. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, I invite you to turn with the first one that we're gonna look at is Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter four, excuse me, Luke chapter four. And then the, the second passage is just a couple of books back. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. So just kind of hang on to those. Luke chapter four, Matthew chapter 22. So in Luke four, Jesus is in his hometown. This is the place where he, he grew up. This is uh, the, the place uh, where, you know, he learned how to walk, where uh, he developed friendships, went to school, went to synagogue with the people in this, in this community. And, and he's kind of been out and he's, he's made his way back into Galilee region, which is a region in northern part of, of Israel. And, and he goes to his hometown of, of Nazareth and it's a Saturday, which means it's Sabbath. And so he goes to the synagogue to worship. And, and Luke tells us that this was kind of a, a common practice that Jesus had was to go into worship. And there was quite a bit of buzz about him. People had heard about him. Uh, there's, you know, his reputation was starting to precede him just a, just a little bit. And so there was buzz about who he is, what he's doing. They, they just didn't know anyone quite like Jesus. They never heard anyone teach the way that he taught or act the way that, that he acted. It, it was so much different than their religious leaders. It was as if he knew God personally, not just intellectually. And on that day in the synagogue, it could have been because he was in his hometown. They're like, hey, there, there's a guest preacher here today. And so we want him to stand and, and to read the scripture and then teach on it. Um, could have been that, you know, he was assigned to it. And so that's why he was there. Whatever the reason, Jesus was there and he stood up and they handed him a scroll. And it could have been the assigned reading for the day. It could have been a scroll that Jesus asked for. But this is what he reads from the prophet Isaiah, Luke chapter four, starting in verse 18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. He has set me apart to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And the people listening to Jesus this morning, they, they would have known the importance of this passage that was written several hundred years earlier. They knew that this was about the Messiah. This was about the promised one of God, the chosen one of God that would come to redeem and restore Israel and lead God's people. And so you can imagine the the excitement. They're, They're leaning in to see what Jesus says next. And so he goes from standing to read the scripture to taking the position of a teacher and he sits. And in verse 21, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled and you're hearing. And when Jesus says this, he's, he's not just saying that the one that Isaiah is talking about here that was written several hundred years ago, that's me. He's not just saying that. He's saying that God has sent him to do the things in this text, to restore what sin had destroyed. He had come to be good news to those who felt broken and beaten down by life. He would release those who were bound by the chains of their sin and the sins of others. He would give sight to those who are spiritually blind and freedom to those who were oppressed. He would proclaim that God's grace and forgiveness are available to all once and for all. And we see Jesus take these actions throughout the course of his ministry. The reason why so many of Jesus' miracles focused on healing the blind and the sick, even raising the dead, is because he was restoring back things back to the way that God intended them to be. It was a physical expression of the spiritual reality that he was ushering in. And he didn't just do this himself. A few chapters later in Luke 9, Jesus sends his disciples out on a short-term mission trip to do what he had been doing. He sent them out to take part in redeeming and restoring broken lives and what sin had destroyed. And he sends them, and in in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, So they went out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. And so Jesus outlines the actions of his ministry in Luke chapter four. He sends his disciples out to participate in those actions in Luke chapter nine. And then at the end of his earthly ministry, he sends us, the church, out to continue to build God's kingdom here on earth and invite people into his way of living, into his way of life, into his salvation. And it's a mission that we continue today. And so we see Jesus do all of these physical miracles as a way of proclaiming the spiritual kingdom that he was ushering in, a kingdom where God was restoring what sin had destroyed. And not only did he do it, he sent his disciples to do it, and now he sends us to continue that work today. And all of this shows us that our faith is not passive. It's not about sitting and receiving or learning more so that we can grow in our head knowledge and, and, and that's it. Like our faith is active. We sit and we learn, we grow in head knowledge so that our heart grows for those who, who, who are lost, for those who need seeking and saving, for those who are hurting in this world. And, and then our, our faith moves us into action. It moves, moves us out of the pews, out of the seats and into a place where we are loving and serving others the way that we see Jesus loving and serving them. Where we partner with God to redeem and restore what sin has destroyed in people's lives. Our faith ought to express itself in love. 
And James, the brother of Jesus, would later say, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In other words, don't just read scripture or listen to sermons and think that you are somehow faithfully following Jesus. And put his words into action and that's when you really begin to follow Jesus. Do what the word says, live it out. Live like Jesus and help others do the same. And I think that millennials model this for us so well. They put their faith into action, oftentimes sacrificing things that other generations really valued in order to pursue their passions and to make a a difference. As a church, we can learn and we can grow from their action-oriented faith that is passionate about restoring these things that sin had destroyed. We can also learn from their authenticity. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. What I've seen in millennials is a desire to get back to the simplicity of authentic faith. To not get hung up on programs or methods, but to really just get back. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to really dive into his word and live by it? And to not get hung up on rules and rituals, instead really pursue the things that matter. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells us what those things are that truly matter. He, he's asked what the greatest commandment is. Kind of the question behind the, the question is, what does pure, authentic faith look like? like? What can we do that really captures what faith is and, and what pleases the Lord? And his response in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 is this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And start thinking about it. Think through the Ten Commandments. Think through some of the other laws in the Old Testament, if if you're familiar with them. All of them hang on loving God and loving others. Loving God and loving others. And what Jesus is, is really teaching us here is that authentic faith is simply loving God and loving others. It all boils down to that. And yet we are so good at complicating what faith ought to be. Studies are showing that fewer and fewer millennials are attending church. I know because I've talked to several of you that that you have a concern for your kids, your grandkids that maybe grew up in church, been a part of your family, it's something that you value, you tried to instill that value in them and you, and you just see their faith beginning to dwindle and they're just not really as interested in it as maybe they once were as you wish that they would be. And, and I get it, it's concerning, it concerns me as well. And when pressed why, many millennials point, they can come up with all kinds of excuses but many millennials point to examples of Christians that they've experienced whose faith does very little in their lives. They go to church on Sunday, but on Monday afternoons, maybe even sometimes Sunday afternoons as they're pulling out of the parking lot, they're rude, judgmental, and just don't really seem to care about the things that they care about, the people that they care about. 
And to them, it just doesn't seem like we are loving God or loving others very well. And we get into these petty little church fights and arguments over preferences and styles. And we're so caught up on that, that we miss what Jesus has called us to, to simply love God and love others, to put our faith into action by redeeming and restoring what sin has broken. And they look at the church and they're like, I don't know that I want any part of that. And here's the thing, millennials are, are not showing a lack of spiritual curiosity. If anything, that is actually growing with millennial generation and even with the, the Gen Z generation that we're gonna talk about next week. Spiritual curiosity is growing. They're interested in Jesus. Man, a lot of them have given up on the church. But studies also show that millennials who are pursuing faith and who are following Jesus, their lives are actually showing more fruit of their faith than generations even before them. Research shows that they read their Bible more and really want to apply it to their life. They serve more, and as their income grows, they are giving more and sacrificially to the causes and the ministries that they believe in. And the unfortunate reality is that the number of millennials following Jesus is declining. But listen, it's not reason to despair because the faith of the millennials who are following Jesus is rich and it is pure. And they don't attend church because it's good for them to be seen here. It's good for business. They don't attend church because of tradition or expectations of their family or their culture. They're following Jesus because they believe in the resurrection. They believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then they go out and they live like they believe it. And their faith is marked by action and authenticity. And I am so grateful for the millennials in my life who have shown me the importance of these two characteristics in my own faith. I've been inspired by millennials who attend our church here and, and are engaged. And, and to be here, you're not here because it's a cultural expectation. <laughs> you're here because you're pursuing something. You're pursuing someone. And man, as a church, we want to value you to let you know that you are loved, you are cared for, and this is a place where you can belong and we wanna help fuel your faith. And so as we wrap up this series over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna add a piece to the end that we've not done for earlier generations. We've said all throughout this series, that we value multi-generational ministry because we believe that scripture values it and God values it. I mean, there's, there's passage after passage that talks about proclaiming the works that the Lord has done to future generations, uh, about celebrating God and helping coming generations and emerging generations find their spiritual footing in the Lord, discipling them, mentoring them. And we wanna be a church that values that because God values that. We want to create an environment where emerging generations can learn to know, love, and follow Jesus. We want to pass on our faith and create a place where our children and our grandchildren and those children who come far beyond us have a place where they can grow to love God, find the grace of Jesus, live in the power of the Holy Spirit, and live in the hope that we have in our faith. And so we're going to be closing the next couple of weeks by asking what does this generation need from us to grow in their faith? Because really, that's a question that we should be asking. 
we should be asking, what can we do to create a place where our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and those who follow them will come to know, love, and follow Jesus as we have? And for millennials, I believe the answer is simply this. It's mentoring. This generation, more than any other that I've worked with, they desire to be mentored. They desire to be discipled, to have someone pour their life into them. They want someone who's a little bit further along in life and faith to come alongside of them, to walk through their struggles and their joys. I've seen it in young men and young women, young married couples. They are hungry for mentors. And I'll be honest, like to kind of pull back the curtain and and put on my pastor hat, there, there are times where it breaks my heart where we have to say, we don't, we don't know who's going to disciple you. We don't know how you're going to be mentored. And so we have people, even within our own church, that are craving this. And we're doubling down on our efforts and all of our ministries, our men's ministry, our life group ministries, our, our women's ministry, in developing mentoring type relationships And the truth is, is that mentoring matters. According to Barna Research, 59% of millennials actively involved in the church were mentored by someone older than them. They did a a long-term study of millennials who were both, who are still engaged in the church and those who have walked away from it. And they found that 59% of them who are still engaged and active in their faith were mentored by someone older than them, compared to 31% of those who had walked away. So we see that mentoring matters. It's not just in the the data that that backs this up. I've been at Sherwood Oaks for almost four years now, and I can't tell you how many young men that I've met who are living out their faith, who are serving Jesus in our church and the community, living these missional type lives. And when I ask them why their faith is so important to them, one of the things I hear over and over and over is that they were mentored by one of our elders, Carrie Curry. And Carrie would be the first to tell you that what he's doing to mentor these young men, it's not easy. In fact, sometimes it can get a little messy. I mean, when you come into someone's life and you walk alongside of them, it can be a challenge at times. And so it's not easy, but it is simple. He's simply meeting groups of guys for breakfast and Bible studies and helping them navigate through the challenges of becoming adults who are following Jesus. He's asking them questions and coaching them along the way. Mentoring really just comes down to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians at chapter 2, verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And so this is how we grow generations of Christ-led influencers. This is how we mentor across generations, by sharing the gospel with them, by proclaiming the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that there is forgiveness and grace that can be found in him, a new life and a fresh start. And we proclaim that message each and every week. And we proclaim it in our homes and in our places of work and in our community. We will always proclaim the message and the hope of the gospel. But we will also come alongside and serve with you and mentor because we believe in this as a value. And you may think, what in the world do I have of any worth or value to give to someone else? But here's the thing, more than any other generation, millennials respond to authenticity, not perfection. They don't care about your phony perfection. (laughs) None of us have it all together. But they do care that you are willing to authentically give of yourself and your time to come alongside of them and to say, yeah, 
I made that mistake too. <laughs> Let me tell you how I recovered. Being a mentor doesn't mean that you have all the answers, that you've got it all figured out. It means that you've been through some things and we've all been through some things and you're willing to let God use that for the good of someone else. It means that you love others enough to give them the greatest commodity you have to give, which is your time. And so my challenge to us this week is to do more than just take a millennial out to coffee or lunch and learn about them. Please do that. They will love you for it. But do just a bit more than that. Prayerfully consider how you can come alongside them in more meaningful ways. If there's a book that you can work through together, a scripture that you can share, is there an area of life where you might be able to come and walk through them as well? Look for ways this week to pour your life into the life of another. And in doing so, you will be living out a more action-oriented, authentic faith, which is such a millennial thing to do. <laughs> Would you stand with me? And I'll close this off in prayer. God, thanks for the millennials in our church. We love them. And they probably don't hear that very often from very many people, but I pray that, Lord, they will know that they are valued and that we are grateful for how they teach us what it means to live out our faith in very real ways and to love you and to love others well. And so, God, may we learn from them, be inspired by them, and may we come together uh, to, to serve you, to build your church, and to bring your kingdom a little bit closer to this earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.